misunderstood. Yeah. Some say that he's up to no good around the neighborhood. Revolve your information. A lot of my brothers got education. Now check it. You got your Wall Street brother. Your blue collar brother. You're down for whatever chilling on the corner brother. My name is Lalu Davies Yemington, and you're listening to My Brother Podcast. It's incredible that in 2020, in the midst of a pandemic, we're still able to telecommunicate, essentially. Uh, this podcast, for example, would be one form of telecommunication. Uh, and that's because of advancements that we've made in technology. The rapid pace at which technology has changed, particularly over the last few decades, has been tremendous. My guest today has been on the forefront of a lot of that change, that evolutionary change that we've all endured and the revolutionary change that's happening right before our face today. Uh, Kenny Frank is uh, a longtime uh, executive in the technology space, and I'm so delighted to have you today. Kenny, why don't you start out by just uh, sharing with our audience a little bit about your background, uh, where you're from, and sort of how you arrived at this point in life? That's a long story. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, just a little bit about me. Um, you know, interesting enough, uh, I was born in Corvallis, Oregon, um, which when I say that to people, they, they always, uh, you know, bat an eyes. Like they, they, can't, they can't believe black folks have, you know, we're, we're, are, are from Oregon. Actually, my, my mom's from Portland and my dad grew up in Seattle, even though he was born in uh in New Orleans, but I was born in Corvallis because he was actually going to school um, for his master's and eventually his PhD at Oregon State uh, in Corvallis. That's the reason, you know, I was there. Um, uh, my brother and my sister were born there as well. My older brother was born in Seattle. So Oregon is where it started, uh, but very soon after he graduated, uh, he moved uh, the whole family to New Jersey. Uh, my dad, back in the uh, late 60s, early 70s, was uh, went to go work for Bell Laboratories, AT&T Bell Laboratories back in the day, and there were a lot of us there. So we uh, spent a number of years in New Jersey, um, uh, then eventually transitioned to Chicago. You know, life happens. Uh, parents got divorced, and so, you know, my dad moved to Chicago. We went back to Oregon, and then eventually we all kind of got to Chicago um, uh, but kind of in a split family scenario. So I consider myself from Chicago because those were my formative uh, years, um, you know, kind of, you know, in all parts of Chicago, South Side, a place called Old Lady of Peace and uh, near 77th and Blackstone, uh, South Side. Uh, I remember that experience. Um, you know, lived in other parts, Evanston, North, north Side of, of Chicago as well. Um, and eventually went on because of my dad, quite frankly, in his background, he was a, doing his PhD in electrical engineering. Um, and I saw him, you know, kind of through his career, you know, like most kids wanting to emulate their father, um, really got uh, focused on, you know, math, science and engineering um, at a very young age. And I was pretty, you know, uh, proficient in it um, just through school. And so but there's a lot of little sub stories uh, there that maybe you'll get a chance to get to. But um, uh, wanted to go off to, you know, the best engineering school. But those that grew up in Chicago know that um, if you're from Chicago and you've experienced the cold in Chicago, you have an objective to get out of the cold. So besides University of Illinois, Urbana, 
which I applied to and got into. I only applied to schools in Florida and California to kind of go to the warm. <laughs> the University of Southern California, which was a good engineering program, good enough to be in L.A., um, and kind of started, you know, went through there as a computer science major. Um, uh, and I had been working at Bell Labs quite, you know, you know, during, you know, summer internships, even back into high school, um, that really kind of got me into the computer science realm. So as I kind of went into computer science in the, in the, you know, kind of mid eighties, which, you know, was probably a little earlier than, than, than most, um, I really came in there with a head of steam because I had already, you know, had so much, you know, industrial experience um, that that you know really felt like I knew what my my game plan was. I went there through undergrad. I went to go work for AT and T Bell Laboratories as well after um, uh, undergrad, and then immediately went off and got my grad degree at, at Stanford University, also in computer science, um, and then just did a number of things in the in the in the field in the technology field uh, predominantly in telecom in the first part of my career and now in software uh in enterprise software in the kind of the second half of my career so that's really the that, that's really this the the the, the some thumbnail journey um you know there, there's a again there's a lot of details in the nuts and crannies of that story but uh you know that's that's the high level elevator pitch I can certainly appreciate that. And you put it so succinctly, uh, just like an engineer would. <laughs> um, so it's got to be, I'm quite fascinated by this, right? You're, you're raised in Oregon, you wind up in Chicago, and you're a sophomore in high school already working at Bell Labs. Can you share a bit of what perhaps your 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 high school experience must have been like? I, I, I got to think that took some initiatives and maturity to be already sort of in a work environment um, while just a sophomore in high school. Yeah, it was, it was interesting. Um, uh, you know, I, I wish I could say that it was some profound strategy, but for me, it was I could make more money doing the internship at Bell Labs and in, in, in the time Naperville, Illinois, than I could, uh, you know, working at some other remedial you know, job. And so I think that that whole linkage of understanding Okay, you know, I could go work at a McDonald's. I can go work at, you know, I think my friends worked at an elderly care home, you know, for something slightly, you know, more than minimum wage perhaps versus going and working um, at Bell Labs and kind of getting the pay that I was getting, which was two or three X of what they were doing for the same work and, or for the, yeah, quite frankly, probably less laborious work, uh, mm -hmm. but also learning at the same time. I think that was kind of the early understanding of what um, highly skilled jobs and the and kind of the flexibility and the value you know they bring to the table and why you know getting an educated getting an education and getting skilled was so critical at a young age but you know I did go there and you learn I mean you go there and if you're if you're quick you know I was learning you know uh, to program in C and I understood Unix at a very early age um, you know these are the advanced you know, tools and technologies, operating systems and such. And then you go and kind of work and, you know, do some of those course coursework in high school and, and, and undergrad. And, and it's almost remedial, you know, relative to what I was doing, um, you know, at the workplace. And so it did give me, a, you know, you know, one, the perspective I talked about, but also just a set of skill sets of understanding kind of what that environment really was, you know, at the workplace. It wasn't some, um, you know, hypothetical or, or abstract concept to me. I, I understood what the, the linkage was. Yeah, yeah, certainly, certainly. So 
what was the transition like from Chicago going all the way down to Southern California? <laughs> they claim it never rains, but I swear I've been there a time or two where it's actually been raining. Yeah, but you know, it's all right. It, it'll, it'll stop and it's a beautiful place after it stops, but it does rain. But, uh, uh, you know, only to laugh because, you know, we, you know, and this is whole ge a generational thing. Um, I, we, I have I have three kids and, you know, I've done the whole experience of dropping them off at school. And it seems like, you know, the, all five of us, my wife and the other you know kids, we all go and, and go through this elaborate process to get, to get them put in their you know, dorm or apartment and, you know, making five trips to Target and Costco and, you know, getting everything they would ever need. Um, for that experience. My experience going off to California was very different. Um, I remember going to Chicago O'Hare Airport and I had one of those old trunks, you know, the, the big trunks mm -hmm. that, you know, that I pretty much packed my life. And uh, I got dropped off at the curb at O'Hare. Uh, you know, they, they didn't park the car. They didn't walk me into, this is before <laughs> security. All right. They just dropped me off at the curb and said, good luck, son. You know, you're going to be all right. I had never been to LA in my life. Um, you know, you know, I'm, I'm 17 years old going off to, to college. Um, uh, so I was, I was, I was younger than most and, and I just showed up. I had no dormitory because, you know, the housing situation at USC was pretty bad. So, you know, they put you up in some temporary setup until they can find you a place, but it was, it was completely unknown to me. And, and I enjoyed that quite frankly. I think that, you know, it's kind of a parody for life is that, you know, when you take those chances and you go, you know, into the unknown, by definition, you're going to, you know, you're, you're going you're gonna to expand your thought process. You're going to expand, you know, your comfort zone. And, and I, I truly enjoyed that. It was probably the best decision I had ever made in terms of, you know, friends and relationships and, and you know, kind of the opportunities that that afforded me, you know, quite frankly, from where I've done. And how did you select your major there? And what was your overall experience like in terms of the, the academics? You know, what organizations might you have been involved with while you were an undergrad? Yeah, so I, I was, I was, you know, it's kind of interesting. The engineer, I, I went there to get into engineering and computer science. I'd already known what I wanted to do going in there. So it wasn't a me going there and then going and figuring out what my major was. I came in there kind of with a running start. Um, it actually taken a bunch of AP classes and that's why it kind of, you know, it's, it's, you know, you already had credits going in there. Um, so, you know, the engineering school at USC was way off on one side of campus. Um, and there weren't too many of us on that side of campus. I mean, you know, you go to, you know, school policy, uh, you know, you know, you know, public relations, you know, all these communications, all these other places you have a number of us and, and those are more central to campus. And so I always found myself, you know, going to my engineering classes and then running back to kind of where the heart of the campus was, where all the social activities were. But, uh, you know, got involved pretty quickly. I, I ended up uh, pledging uh, a fraternity. I pledged Kappa Alpha Psi, you know, my, actually my second semester uh, freshman year, you know, pretty young. Uh, we actually had a, a house on campus, uh, a, a house on fraternity row with you know, all the predominantly white sororities and, and fraternities, um, you know, we were the only black one on there. And we had a lot of experiences, you know, doing that, made a lot of money because we, you know, do these big parties and that sort of thing. And so, you know, it, it was a great social and educational uh, experience, you know, being at USC. I mean, it's, it's not a school that, you know, is double digit percentage black. I mean, there's probably three or 4% of us, but we were very, very tight. I mean, you go, you know, pretty much everybody knows everybody that was there during that time. Um, they stayed pretty tight even today. 
Um, and it was just, it was just a great, 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 great experience, um, you know, to be out there in California, you know, during, during, during those days. So as your college career winds down, you're getting your degree, uh, what happens next? What was, what was the, the, the transition from, from undergrad? So yeah, from undergrad, I, uh, you know, I was, I was still part of the AT&T system. Actually, I was on there. I went there, you know, on a full ride with uh, AT&T. They actually gave me a full ride, and I had to maintain a certain uh, GPA during that. I will give a bit of a side note, which is kind of funny. I, you know, my, I told you a little bit about my dad, but yeah, you know, when, when you get a full ride to go to USA, and your 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 dad and your parents don't have to pay for it, you know, they're pretty happy. But I had to maintain a certain GPA, and you know, freshman year, I you know do real well, three six, three seven, something like that, and. You know, uh, second semester, I, I told you I pledged. Um, I, you know, the GPA went down dramatically, uh, as, as you could probably imagine. And, and back then, you 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 didn't get the grades electronically. The grades actually got shipped to your home address. Um, I remember going back home for you know kind of that summer, and I saw you know an envelope on the you know in the living room in the in the middle of the little council there. And I'm like, yeah, I think those are my grades. And my dad had gotten them. And you could tell that the, the envelope had been opened already, right? <laughs> and so he pulls me in there and he goes, he goes, uh, what happened? And I said, well, dad, you know, da, 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 you know, just, you know, you know, got defocused a little bit and you know, I got involved with, you know, this return. And then he jumped in and he says, that goddamn Kappa apple pie whatever the hell that shit is you know you better get your stuff together and um and so it was like yeah so that that was you know you you i had a great experience um you know but as as i kind of got my act together and, and got back on track you mm -hmm. know you know i was very motivated to say okay i'm, I'm with this at&t you know uh you know scholarship it pretty much guarantees me a job after i'm done you know, with school and, and, and Bell Labs at the time was the place to be for, you know, anybody in the technology area. Um, and so I did that and they immediately sent me off to grad school. So it was, a, it was you know, I mean, literally I'd worked the summer and then, you know, they shipped me off to grad school and I had choices of where I wanted to go, um, but wanted to stay you know, west. But um, and, and, and Stanford always was that place that called me. I mean, something about that place just was always mesmerized me and um, had an opportunity to go there and, 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 and do the master's program in computer science there. So, so had that transition where I did that in, in, in a year, got my master's in about a year and then went back to um, Bell Labs where I started my career, you know, for the first four or five years before I went down to Atlanta, which we'll go to later. But it was an interesting time then because this, this was 89, 90, um, and this is right when a lot of the change in Silicon Valley started happening. And so, you know, you had a lot of the traditional companies, like what I worked for, Bell Labs, you had Hewlett Packard, you had, you know, digital equipment, you have all these, you know, I call legacy companies. And then you had the emergence of Cisco, you know, some of the, you know, kind of up and coming companies that were there. I mean, and then Stanford is sitting right there. So you have the guys that started Yahoo were, you know, you know, kind of in you know, research assistance there. So just so much was going on at the yeah. beginning of that whole, you know, you know, kind of internet, you know, technology application boom that was starting to happen at that time. Um, sometimes I wonder whether I should have jumped on that bandwagon because, you know, they came after a lot of us who were at Stanford, but it, you kind of looked at it and said, well, you know, no, I got the sure thing 
with Bell Labs, I'm going to go ahead and do that. Um, it worked out, but I mean, it's just, you, know, you always wonder, right? You always wonder what would have happened if you had taken, you know, that other path at that particular, you know, window. And um, it's something I, I do continue to think about, but that, that was that transition. So go back to, you know, to, to, to Bell Labs after my master's uh, program and got into kind of the heart of telecom. I mean, we started doing some of the first programmable, you know, telecom services started opening up, you know, services like calling name delivery and, you know, all as, as telecom started getting more interesting, kind of more software oriented, um, that's when I started getting involved and that became, you know, a, a great opportunity for me to kind of get in there and really start doing some interesting things. Yeah, so it's, you know, you have sort of uh, a rather unique journey. I mean, I, my wife and I, my wife runs a STEM organization and she talks about when she was a science uh, teacher in high school, Yates High School here in Houston, they had these co-op programs that allow students to actually work, you know, for a couple of hours a day or however it worked. Um, and uh, and so a number of her students who didn't end up going to college, they've been able to build these successful careers uh, because they have that yeah. entry level opportunity. They got in so early. Uh, your journey is one where you latch on through this, you know, early internship and you continue to grow through there. So, uh, you know, typically I'd ask, well, what was the what were the first four to five years of working full time were like? But you were already sort of within the culture. So how what, was that a common thing uh, with your colleagues at the time when you started your let's call it your professional uh <laughs> leg of your career with no no it, it wasn't i mean I, I you know i even talk to people now it's a, it's a it's a unique situation i mean you know i don't know too many others that you know by the time they went and started school i mean i, I had literally interned six different summers before i started full time after my you know undergraduate degree and 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 people kind of say well how did you move from technology to you know management and leadership you know you know why don't you write code anymore um and and I remember when I first got to you know my first you know experiences the first every summer you do something and as you got in the system you could you know help orchestrate what you did the next summer um, and I think remember the first summer I was doing some kind of quality you know QA work where you're where you're assessing people's code right you're you're checking for bugs you're checking for you know you know problem code um, and and you know started doing that and. Quite frankly, by the time the summer was ended, I was out there critiquing these software developers saying, if you had written your code like this, you know, you'd make my job easier and you'd improve the quality of the program and started, you know, critiquing, right? So mm -hmm. um, next summer I said, well, I'm not gonna be in QA anymore. I'm gonna go become one of the software developers to show them how it's done. So then became a software developer, right? Um, and then when I was a software developer, I re remember there was somebody feeding me input, which was, at the time they call system engineers. These are people that write requirements that you have to write code to. Um, and so then I start critiquing them and start saying, hey, you know, if you wrote better requirements, you know, you know, we could do things more efficiently in the software side. Okay. And, and, and every one of these resources, the system engineer may drive a dozen developers and a dozen developers may drive, you know, a, a whole lot more QA people. And so there's this leverage, you know, structure, you know, there that you kept wanting to get to the front of the food chain. And, and you kept, you know, I, I started realizing very early as a very young person, let me get in front of the food chain. Let me go to where the strategic decisions are getting made because I know that I can influence a bigger system when I went ahead and did that. And so 
the thing that, that that internship experience allowed me to do is kind of fast forward a lot of that learning that probably would have taken me five years to do. Um, and I would have had to navigate, you know, how it is once you kind of start something permanently, you know, unlike an internship where you can kind of jump around and get these experiences, you know, you know, full-time employee, you don't have as much of that flexibility. So it allowed me to fast forward that and then understand myself as well, just to say, okay, you know, where is my natural, you know, place in this hierarchy and, and don't put myself so far deep in the hierarchy that I can't influence you know, the direction of the business. Um, now, still, I'm a young engineer and that sort of thing, probably, you know, a little, a little too cocky at the time. But nonetheless, I mean, I, I kind of understood that phenomena and and wanted to fast forward it, you know, pretty aggressively. And, and I think I was able to go ahead and do that. Yeah, definitely sounds uh, sounds like you did. Uh, so you're, you're moving up the chain. What uh, led to the decision that took you down to Atlanta? What was that position? And why did you choose to, uh, I guess, make that step at the time? Well, so I, I was, I was, I was, you know, at, at Bell Labs and we were, you know, it was called, you know, part of Bell Labs called AT&T Network Systems. And, and you know, had a really, really vibrant, you know, African-American population there. I mean, they were pretty active actually back in the, in the eighties, probably more active than they were in the nineties and, and you know early two thousands, um, but and this was in in California. Uh, this was actually in Naperville, Illinois. So you know Got the um, uh, AT and T, this part, this division, they're the kind of the Bell Labs division. They were predominantly in Naperville and New Jersey. There was a few other satellite organizations, but those are the two major major locations. Um, so was there doing that? Started working on something called the five ESS. It's a switching system. It's a telephone switching system. So all the calls that you know, managing all the calls that go back and forth. I mean, this stuff still exists in the in the networks today. It's, it was built so well that they don't they don't depreciate. They don't actually go down. And they don't have to be replaced. Mm-hmm. Is you know, probably one of the problems with the with the with the unit and how how it couldn't keep making money because you know they sold stuff that didn't need to be replaced at some point. Um, but but um, so I was doing that. I started realizing, you know, at the time my world was in the switching system. You tell me anything about the switching system, the architecture, where the software sat, how it worked. I was an expert, but then I started getting exposure to this switching system is just part of a bigger ecosystem that I don't know anything about. Okay. And, and I started trying to understand, okay, what outside of the switching system do I need to understand? Do I need to understand, you know, you know, the issues of transmission, you know, of, 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 you know, software, of, you know, services of operations of, you know, consumer marketing, you know, all the things that started, you know, that were much broader than what I was doing. I realized that I was never going to get there, you know, from where I was sitting, you know, in, in, in kind of an equipment manufacturer role. So um, I started getting real good in a particular technology where I started going down to uh, started going to see operators. So I started to see, you know, Verizon before Verizon, it was Pac Bell, it was Bell South. It was, Belt Atlantic, it was all the different, you know, companies, uh, you know, selling what we do as a switching system, starting to get to know a lot of these customers, which gave me some of that exposure I, I, I referenced. Um, and, and two things hit me when I went to Atlanta to go see Bell South. You know, one was this phenomena around understanding there's a bigger world than, than what I was working on. And then secondly, you know, living in Naperville, Illinois, which is a western suburb of, of Chicago, uh, where there weren't a whole lot of us there. I go to Atlanta and a friend of mine, you know, drives me around and brings me to some areas in Southwest Atlanta, the, the Cascades and some other areas 
And I'm sitting there saying, and how many black people live here? And they said, it's all black. Um, and, and it's the first time I've ever seen in my life a upper middle class black community. Um, and I was just having my first child at the time. And, and all that came together. I mean, the, the professional interests, my you know, drive to kind of raise my daughter in an environment that was a little more healthy for her, you know, wanting to be personally, my wife and I in an environment that was more healthy for us, all that came together, which said it was the right time to, to move to Atlanta and experience that. And it was, it was a great experience, I mean, being in that area and then going transitioning to Bell South at the time where I got a whole set of other experiences and in, in, in technology that were much broader than what I was doing before. Can you share some of what those uh, experiences were? So we started getting into a lot of business services development. Um, uh, we called it Advanced Intelligent Network. But the, the probably the area that I really you know, kind of made a big transition at Bell South in was when I uh, started, you know, I was one of the first few people that started working on DSL. We call it the digital subscriber line. And this is yeah, back in the you know this is mid '90s. Um, you know, most people, folks who remember mid '90s. We we talk about how the pace of technology changed, but most people were using modems at the time. They were using AOL. Absolutely, AOL, remember AOL, MindSpring, and all these other you know tools, right? Earthlink, and you know whoever, depending on where you where you lived in the country. Um, and there was this technology called DSL, ADSL, um, you know, which which used copper lines to send higher speed data services over. But the technology was originally oriented around video dis distribution. So, you know, the notion of the internet wasn't really big at the time. It was, you know, how do you distribute video efficiently? You know, switch video, right, is what everybody was really excited about. And, and I started looking at that technology and some others started looking at that and said, really, we can go and run a data service over this. At the time, it was something called ATM, asynchronous transfer mode, but it was a, a data technology over it that that can actually be a feeder into you know the internet and and we started working on that very early and so i switched from you know traditional you know telecom to kind of data networking you know during that time and and got really good at it we actually wrote a bunch of standards you know to go and and you know really show how we can use that technology for the internet and became one of the the few people around the experts and and you know on that particular technology every time we kind of had big strategic meetings, you know, I'd always get a phone call and have to go up to where, you know, the, the big conference rooms where all the executives were sitting at who had no idea what we were getting into, but I was the guy who would represent what, you know, this is what we should be doing. And, and really, you know, that really kind of started the acceleration of my career, quite frankly, you know, moving from a great individual contributor to somebody that, you know, started having some pretty significant influence on, you know, corporate strategy and other things. And that, that's when things kind of really started taking off for me. Yeah. Now, you know, I know looking back in hindsight, did you have a sense of what the power of technology could be? I mean, I'm thinking in the mid 90s, I remember we had AOL. There was a, you know, slow dial up process. And then you heard that little chime. Uh, and then it was like if you had AOL, you had email. And that was like you were way out ahead of the game if you had email in 96. So, at that point in your career, do you guys, did you have a sense of, man, there are these possibilities that lie ahead if we just harness them? I mean, I think an example is you looking at copper, you know, wiring and saying, how oh, we could run data over that. So I, I, I think so. We, we, 
Yeah, it's kind of interesting you, you mentioned that. And I, let's fast forward to something I had done, you know, much, much later in my career. But, you know, I was running around at that time, you know, pushing not just, you know, DSL from an access mechanism. We call it access because it's between the consumer and, and the network, but also within the network, how to move the network to, you know, an all IP infrastructure as well. And looking at all the sets of services, you know, in all different parts of the economy, whether it's, you know, entertainment, um, you know, education, commerce, you know, you name it, you know, what can run over that infrastructure and, and really change business models. Now, did I know, you know, I mean, you know, what would things look like in 2020? No, you know, but the concepts of, you know, there being kind of a common, you know, IP, you know, it wasn't even IP at the time, it was, some, it was another technology, but kind of a common data infrastructure that, you know, multiple services can run over, you know, that was born way back in those times because we were really espousing. And so we did have a, at least directionally, we saw where this could go. Now, exactly how it was going to get there, you know, you know, still took a lot of different turns that, you know, none of us could have predicted precisely. But I think directionally, we kind of had a sense for where, you know, what the possibilities were, right? Um, and, and, you know, I'm, I'm going to jump over a few experiences, but, you know, one of my later experiences, I moved up the ladder and, you know, did what I did at Alcatel Lucid, you know, you know, running a division with, you know, four or 5,000 people and multiple billion dollars of P&L and a bunch of stuff. We'll kind of go through all that kind of stuff. But, you know, there was, there was a, you know, I was out there espousing some of the same concepts, but in, you know, much more granular ways, you know, with a lot more, um, you know, current technology under my belt um, across the world, in, including India, uh, where, uh, you know, I was doing this presentation in India around how these networks are really application frameworks. They're not, you know, they're not just built for data and voice communications anymore. They're built for, you know, driving commerce and industry. And I was doing this, this, this talk in, in Mumbai I'm about to get on the airplane. If you ever flew back from Mumbai, either back to Europe or whatever, you know, the flights usually leave like two or three o'clock in the morning. You know, so we have a dinner. We're kind of headed to the airport. I get a phone call that says, we want you to spend another night in Mumbai. And I'm just like, I'm, I'm exhausted at this point. I mean, you know, India and Mumbai especially can be very exhausting. And I'm like, well, why do you want me to spend another night? And he's like, well, we walked through your presentation with Mukesh Ambani um, uh, here in Mumbai, and he wants to meet you. And did you know who Mukesh Ambani is? You know who he is. I've been and reading about him. So, so Mukesh Ambani, now I think he's in the top 10 richest people in the world. Um, and, and he had just purchased a, a, an all uh, 4G license across India um, and didn't know what to do with it, but didn't want to go, didn't have the business case to go and just build a communications network with his 4G license. He wanted to build something you know, far more strategic. And so he's holding on to these licenses and, and he gets a wind of my, you know, kind of my strategy and my, you know, what, I, what I'm espousing. Um, and I go meet Mukesh and his right-hand guy, Manoj Modi. Um, and, and, and I mean, we just hit it off. I mean, you know, what they're trying to do, what I'm trying to do, you know, he goes, Kenny, I want you to come to Mumbai. Um, I want you to come to Mumbai. I want to bring, I want you to bring as many, you know, people to Mumbai that can help build what you're describing in Mumbai. I have the licenses. I have the money. Let's do it. Um, and I still have this big job at Alcatel Lucid, 
Um, but my passion is that they're saying, okay, I have somebody who has the vision and the wherewithal to actually build what I'm saying. Um, and it was exactly the same thing I was doing at Bell South, you know, just at a very different level. But mm -hmm. fast forward to this, you know, almost doing exactly the same thing, but at very different terms and very different scale, um, you know, with, with one of the, you know, the kind of top industry people in the world um, there and, and spent a year and a half in Mumbai helping to build it. And now it's called GEO, J-I-O. Um, all you do is go in and Google search it, like literally right now in the last month and a half, um, probably every private equity firm, I think Facebook just put a billion dollars into it. I mean, there's, there's, is, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm talking, I think they've raised something on the order of 10 to 15 billion in the last two months, uh, you know, going and, and, and funding Geo because it's already disrupted the market in India for what it's become. And, and, and it was, you know, in my view, it started with that, you know, conversation. Now, would they have built something else and still have made the difference they could have? But that mm -hmm. architecture was the architecture we espoused, and wow. and a bunch of us, you know, went there and actually, uh, you know, helped helped really set that up. And so, um, you know, those are kind of those are where these connections actually happen, right? You did something very early in your career that just manifests itself later in your career, and you can never predict that. It's just you know you couldn't find the thread between those two things, you know, you know naturally until until you look kind you know from a hindsight perspective. Um, just really interesting side side note. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I know that you ended up taking on this big role at Alcatel Lucent, but take us between Bell South and Alcatel Lucent. There, there were some steps along the way and it wasn't all always rosy. <laughs> yeah. So, so uh, at Bell South, I told you I moved into the data side. Um, it was very well liked at Bell South. They put me in the leadership development program got my first couple promotions there. They started trying to put me around the company to get different operational responsibilities. Certainly often got my MBA. So I went to Emory and got my MBA during during that, that time period. Uh, and I just remember one time being in the office, there was, a, there was an office mate of mine. Um, you know, we still had two personal offices back then. Um, and and you know, this guy, we always bring his lunch to, you know, beg lunch to, to the office. Um, to save money, right? I mean, he, he didn't want to go out to lunch. He wanted to save money and bring his lunch to the office. And I always thought that was kind of strange. You know, he's making decent money. Why is he, why is he doing that? So he, he leaves like in 97, 98. And about a year after he left, he comes back into town. He moved up to Boston. Uh, he comes back in town and he's worth $15 million all of a sudden because he went to go work for, you know, one of these startups um, in, in, in Boston that, you know, goes IPO and, you know, he's worth all this money in, in that literally that time, 12 months. Uh, he comes in, he brings me out to a drink. Now he's not bringing his you know, little bag lunch anymore. Now he takes me out to lunch. Um, and, and he says, Kenny, you got to get out of there. He says, you know, him and I were the ones that are always competing for the top slot in the organization. And he goes, you know, you need to, you need to get out of there. And um, he says, there's too much out there that, you know, could leverage you and you need to do it. And so I, you know, there's a guy that I met. Um, uh, he was a guy that worked at UUNet, a guy named Johnson Agarbois, uh, became one of my really, really close, close friends. Um, him and I worked on some things that on DSL, the DSL form, the standards bodies, got to know each other pretty well. And he had hooked up with Kleiner Perkins and they were going to go create a company called Broadband Office, um, which, you know, basically took a lot of the real estate investment trust building assets 
and we were going to build a network that goes into their buildings and provide services and tenants with them in those buildings. And they had raised a bunch of money and, you know, uh, five of us became the founding management team of broadband office. And, and I literally picked up in a moment's notice, um, you know, a really s- senior executive at, at, at Bell South was just literally bringing me into his office to tell me what my next role was going to be. And before he could get it out of his mouth, I told him, I said, Bill, before you go on, I'm leaving the company. I'm going to go do this startup. And um, you know, I'm really excited about it. And he's just in shock that I'm going to be leaving the company. And so I go and I moved to the D.C. area to go start this company called Broadband Office. And it was, you know, it was the most exciting thing I'd ever done in my career. It was also the most disappointing thing in that, you know, the, the, the dot-com bubble burst in 2001, 2002, and you know, all the funding dried up, but we also built it to about 800 employees between 99 and 2001, had the time of my life, you know, we sat there and built a team that would, um, you know, would, would literally compete with any team I've ever worked with in my entire life or ever seen in my entire life. Um, and, and we did some pretty tremendous things with new technology you know, with, with and, and, you know, there's an environment where you, you're at Bell South, you're at other places where all the infrastructure is there. When you found a company early, early on like that, there is no infrastructure. Um, you know, there's no, there's no network, there's no email system, there's no processes, there's no financial systems, there's nothing. I mean, you're just, you know, showing up at an office. Quite frankly, the only office we had was in the, it was called the Toilet Bowl Building in, in, in uh, Tyson's Corner, Virginia. Um, it was behind the TGI Fridays. It was an old storage facility that they cleared out because space was such a premium at that time. We couldn't get space quickly. And so every morning we had to walk, you know, by the garbage from last night's TGI Friday and smell it. Because you know, so I go from Bell South where I got the big mahogany office to, you know, walking by smelling you know, garbage every morning. And But did that startup and grew it and built, that pro- built the processes, built the products built the team, you know, built the system, scaled it to become, you know, global, you know, enterprise negotiated, you know, significant, you know, you know, deals that were the, you know, nine digit deals. Um, you know, we're just doing crazy things that I never thought I would be able to be, you know, do. I wouldn't have been able to do at Bell South or AT&T um, in my role. And, and, and that became a great experience. But at the same time, you start realizing that you got to be funded. And, and, you know, the, our sponsors were saying, scale, scale, scale the business. Um, uh, you know, hey, we can, you know, we, you know, our, 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 our peers were going IPO and at high valuations. We were the best of the peer group. You know, we hadn't got IPO yet. Um, so all that was going great. We're in the front page of the Wall Street Journal, just a lot of great things. But then the bubble burst. And when the bubble burst, it bursts quick. Um, and, and so all the fun going up, you know, we had to deal with bridge mm. loan finance people and everything else going down. And, um, uh, but the, the assets of that company ended up becoming a company called Maestergy, which actually still in existence. They have all of our intellectual property. I actually transitioned you know, with a bunch of my team over to that new company uh, as, as we kind of you know, went through the asset sell you know, during that period. And that company still actually is, is thriving pretty much um, you know, in the space, using a lot of the core technology that we had. And that's when I actually trans- transitioned over to Alcatel maybe about a year after that experience um, and became their chief technology officer and started getting – into a brand new area um, when I went to Alcatel, which was um, the IPTV arena. So if you know Uverse, the AT&T getting into video, uh, I was on the forefront of that. So you know, throughout this career, just as you kind of see things, I was always kind of doing 
what I call the, the bleeding edge opportunity. So, you know, it was data networking, it was intelligent networking, it was, it was this multi-services architecture, it's, you know, venture capital-based companies, and then I go to Alcatel and I'm sitting there doing video over um, a telecom network, you know, to, co- to compete with the DirecTVs and the cable companies, you know, to get, you know, uh, AT&T and Verizon into those businesses and, and, and really, you know, hit it off there and, and did some pretty tremendous things. We call it with Uverse and, and IPTV. They call it Lightspeed was the internal project name, but um, uh, controlled all of that, built that project, you know, for AT&T and expanded that across a number of other you know, carriers, you know, globally. Um, and did, did really well there. And you know how it works when, when you deliver, and that was a multi-billion dollar project for, for Alcatel, you know, that set me up really well for taking on bigger and better things. Um, and then we ended up merging with Lucent, and Lucent was the old Bell Labs that I used to work for before I went to Bell South, and so it became full circle. And, and so, you know, by the time I go work for Lucent, I'm running a pretty big division at Alcatel. It merges in, you know, I get all these employees, and, and funny enough, my first boss when I, you know, left undergrad, you know, I'm sitting there looking at my new employee list at the merger, and my mm-hmm. first boss is actually in the organization that I've inherited. Um, the first phone call I made was to her and said, you know, you know, Barbara, you know, hey, you know, you're back together again. And, and I was so humble. You know, I was probably three or four levels above her at the time. You know, I still revered her as my first boss because, you know, she taught me so many things. It was, it was, it's yeah. just a big story. So just went through that transition um, at Lucent and just learned a lot. It just kept moving up. Um, and so at this point, how many people are you managing? Oh, man, just depending on the time. Um, you know, IPTV, I was probably managing about a thousand people. Then I started running, you know, the professional services division globally, which is probably about 2,500. Um, and then when we merged with Lucent, I ended up taking the job of uh, President Solutions and Marketing, where we had all the LTE infrastructure underneath me, all the software, all the integration services. And I mean, it had to be somewhere in the five to 6,000 range at the time, um, you know, probably about a four to $5 billion P&L, um, you know, depending on how you count it. Um, and so uh, that's when they actually moved me to France. So I actually moved to, to Paris. I reported directly to the CEO of Alcatel Lucent. So, you know, everything was at the time headquartered in, in Paris at the time. So, you know, packed with the family and, and moved to, to, to France for five years. And uh, how was it to convince your wife of that move? Uh, you know what? If, if she had known we were going for five years, it would have been harder. And the, I, I think the idea was that we're going to go for a couple of years and turn to five. Um, but yeah, not everybody was, you know, it wasn't like trying to move to Mumbai or something like that. It was, it was, uh, it, it, it wasn't that hard of a sell. The, the issue for us was our kids. Um, you know, my, my two youngest son, I have three kids, I have three kids, a, a, a daughter who's the oldest and, and two younger sons. My daughter um, was in her junior year of high school. And so just the timing of that became a challenge. But then she accelerated things and ended up graduating in three years. Um, and we had the choice at 16 whether to send her off to college or I convinced her to say, come to Paris with us and just enjoy life for a year in Paris. You know, go to the American school in Paris and you don't have to take any hard classes because you already have gotten accepted into you know, college. Should just come, come with us and defer the uh, enrollment. Um, she ended up doing that but still did a bunch of, you know, international baccalaureate classes and all that. But yeah, getting the family moved there. But the kids, my, my, my sons hadn't started high school yet. So they actually went through high school 
uh, in Paris. And it was a great experience for them. It was a great experience for my wife and I. Um, I consider Paris my second home. I just, I, I get there and just, you know, you know so many people and you just, you, you know the city. It's very different than a touristy perspective of the of the city. I know that pretty well. And I can't help it. Parlez-vous français? Oh, je parle plus français, mais c'est difficile pour moi. No, I, I, I did get to, uh, in my background, I own a wine bar at one point. I sold it last year. So I did spend some time in France in 2017. It was just a phenomenal experience. Oh, okay. Being in the villages, but back to your career because no, really- since you since you know wine and like I said, I, you know I like to go off these tangents, so I hope you appreciate that as an interview. But but the uh, when when we came back from France, um, I got into wine pretty significantly, and you know you get these big containers to go back home, yeah, right? and I get this big container and I get a, a reefer, which is a refrigerated container, and I put twenty five hundred bottles of French wine on it. And I told my wife, I said, whatever other furniture and household goods can fit on there after the wine can come. Everything else we're selling. So I actually brought that back with me when I came back to to the states, and so I'm still I'm still consuming that wine. So I'm a big, wow. big yeah. So if you're ever in the in the Dallas area, I must uh, uh, yeah, I must entertain you. We'll we'll be glad to indulge you, my brother. <laughs> thank you. thank you. So. You you now you spent five years with Alcatel Lucent. What was that uh, role like? And I know it's it's during that time that you end up with this uh, this introduction to uh, Mukesh uh, Ambani. Yeah. So so yeah, I was I, as I got into the solutions and marketing world and looking at you know really how to push you know Alcatel Lucent in terms of its portfolio and and its offer kind of away from just pure equipment sales into what we call solutions, which are, you know, how to truly transform, um, you know, our customers' businesses um, is really what I, what I focused on. Um, that's what got me the intro to, to Mukesh and ended up starting a joint venture with him. In addition to my other responsibilities, a joint venture where, you know, I brought a bunch of talent into Mumbai, you know, from all over the world in, in very specialized skills, um, you know, we all, everybody but me moved there. I couldn't talk my wife into moving uh, to, to Mumbai, but I basically, you know, spent three weeks there and came back for a long weekend and spent another three weeks there for about a year and a half um, and, and really helped them from the beginning build that infrastructure, you know, through a joint venture. Okay, with uh, with your employer at the time? Yeah, yeah. So I talked to my CEO, uh, Ben Verwyan, uh, who's the CEO at Alcatel at the time. He had constantly wanted to get into India and get into Mukesh, but he couldn't figure out how to do it. So he saw this as a, as an opportunity, um, you know, when I hit it off with him. And so I orchestrated that, you know, Mukesh wanted me to come work for him. I said, as a black American, I, I don't see myself being, you know, working in India for a long period of time, you know, but I, I love what you're doing. Let me figure out how, how to make this happen. And so the agreement was that I would, you know, become the, you know, the head of a joint venture, which was, partially funded by Alcatel, Lucent, and partially funded by Reliance Industries. Um, and I would run it to really help them, you know, you know, start, you know, the creation of what they call, what is now GEO. It was called a, a bunch of other things prior to GEO, but yeah, th- that's what we started there under a joint venture infrastructure. Okay, so I got the, I get the benefit of still working for a Western company, but still, you know, being pretty much allocated to, uh, to this. To this, yeah. and. 
you know, I think we all have those moments and I often ask people, you know, when do you have that sort of aha moment? I've got to think meeting Lakash had to be one of those for you uh, in your career, notwithstanding the success you had already enjoyed up until that point in your career. What was that visit with him like? It was, you know, and, and, and I'll tell you my next transition, you know, with Robert Smith, which was another aha moment. I've had a few of these, which is kind of interesting. But um, with Mukesh, it was very interesting because we aligned so much from a vision perspective um, that whether he was a, you know, multi-billionaire or whether he was just another executive in the industry, um I don't know how different it would have been. You know what I mean? But just his, 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 his thought process and his, his command of vision, you know, was just one of the most unique things I had ever come across in the industry. I mean, he just, there's something so special about him and how he looked at, um, you know, business, how he looked at his country, you know, how he looked, you know, just, just the, just the way he approached everything. And, um, and I appreciated that with him. I mean, at the time he was on the board of bank of America, and him and I were talking about this, you know, and he had, he had gone to Stanford, but he never finished Stanford because um, his father pulled him back, you know, I mean, you know, before he could actually finish. Um, and so we, we t- you know, have these conversations and he was on the board of Bank of America. And I remember him telling me, he says, Kenny, when I got on the board, I needed to go and understand how that business operated. So he studied and studied and studied and studied to understand exactly, you know, kind of what drives the banking business and specifically Bank of America. Um, and, you know, he gave a little critique of the other board members. He said, you know, I don't think that either of these other board members have studied the way and really understand how the, how the company works. And, you know, their notion of an issue hits their, hits their lap is let's go create a committee to go study it and bring back recommendations. And we look at those recommendations and do it. He's like, I don't want a committee. I need to understand it myself. Um, and so, you know, he was not only a visionary, but he also, you know, was probably one of the the strongest operators that I've ever run across in my entire life. Right. So you have a one end. You, you typically, you know, you run across people that are, you know, kind of I call head in the clouds, you know, but their feet aren't connected to the ground. I mean, his head was in the clouds, but his feet were so planted on the ground. It was amazing. So he could play both ends of the spectrum, which was so unique to me. I mean, you know, I've, I've dealt with executives before that will will be in one or the other or right in the middle. I mean, but never that can kind of span, you know, that whole spectrum. And mm-hmm. uh, and that that was intriguing to me. So working with him, you know, was was one of the you know most interesting things I've done in my career. I mean, just, you know, some of the things I learned from him, uh, just being in that environment for that period of time, uh, just you, know, you, you learn this Western management style and approach. And you get there and, you know, some of it's applied, but there are so many other management approaches that you learn from that environment. One example I'll give you, you know, in India, it's all about, um, you know, uh, you know, ARPU, you have low, you know, revenue per client. So, you know, you, you don't get you $50, dollar you know, per month revenue from, you know, the Indian market. It's just they can't afford that. You know, you're getting, you know, 5 to $10, you know, if that, okay. And so your cost of goods becomes extremely important. Okay, uh, you know, in in a, in a in a world like that, much more important than it is in Western Europe or in the U.S. Um, and so his idea was, how do I build an infrastructure that gives me 
the lowest cost of goods profile out there. And I will be willing to invest millions in the planning and architecture work to make sure the output is, is you know, the most efficient thing going forward because my real money is in scaling this business. And so he actually had multiple competing entities going on in the planning and architecture side. Um, and in most Western management styles would say, hey, that's duplicative, you know, that's inefficient. You know, and his idea was, okay, I'm spending a few million in each one or, you know, whatever I'm spending in each one, that's irrelevant because I actually want the best idea coming from, you know, each of these three. And the, 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 I'm going to go with the one that gives me the best profile moving forward. And that's just some cost because I, you know, I can replace that. I can't replace an inefficient architecture I scale across India. Um, and, and, and I look at it and I said, yeah, that is the logical way of pursuing that kind of strategy. It's why, you know, American company would just have one group designing it. Whatever the output is, you go run with it and be happy with it. You have no idea there's an alternative that could be, you know, much stronger. But you know, you didn't have the other group looking at it. So, um, you know, those sort of things were very interesting working for for him. And but boy, they work hard. They work six. You know, we work six days a week. Um, you know, this is a six day work week in India for 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 true, um, you know, native Indian companies. If you are multinational, you work five five days a week. But a true Indian companies work six days a week. And then at day seven, he'd have a, you know, he'd invite you over to the cricket match, you know, in the Mumbai uh, Indians. If you go to a cricket match, which is, I learned cricket, you know, not playing it, but just watching it. Um, and then, you know, he'd have tea at his house afterwards, which was basically an operations review. Um, so day seven was, was also, you know, leverage on his side. So you work really hard, but it was a great, great experience. I'd do it, do it again in a heartbeat. Yeah. Wow. You know, I could talk so much more about that experience. Yeah, I with you, but, yeah. uh, I've got to get to the next segment in your career. So take us through what happens after you've done this fantastic work in Mumbai, had this great experience. What leads to that next transition for you? So, so you know, I'm, I'm in Europe still, um, jumping back and forth to Mumbai. A good friend of mine kept wanting me to get introduced to these guys at Vista, you know, uh, he says, Kenny, you've got to understand the private equity world. Um, you're doing all these great things in large, you know, multinationals, but you've got to understand this, this, and I think you have the personality, you know, for it with what you've done. And so it literally took a year for me to finally meet them. And I wasn't motivated. I, I, I just wasn't motivated. I, I looked at private equity as, at the time of, you know, companies would go, you know, saddle companies with a bunch of debt, you know, take a bunch of cash out, exploit the company, do a bunch of financial engineering. And that's just not where my heart and passion was. And so um, I ended up going and meeting one of them in a chance meeting in London and uh, and found out their model was the exact opposite of what I anticipated. It was all around operational value creation and, you know, going into companies and improving companies, you know, driving, you know, updating their strategy, updating their execution, updating their processes and their systems um, and their efficiency and, and improving these companies, selling them at a much higher clip than what you bought them for making a bunch of money in the process, but creating better companies. And, and I fell in love with that model. I didn't know that existed. And, and, you know, you go from these bigger companies that are highly bureaucratic and, you know, decision-making takes, you know, you know, months and quarters instead of days and weeks. And I remember some of that during my startup days where I just loved that, you know, moving very, very quick, you know, in, in my startup days, you know, when I went to DC and, 
and kind of lost it when I go to the bigger companies and and wanted some of that again. And, and the private equity world kind of seemed like the perfect you know balance between okay, it's it's very entrepreneurial, but it it at least it has customers and it has a different risk profile than what I dealt with in in '99 at, at, at the startup. And so kind of got caught up with them, you know, you know, went and, and started getting to know more of those players. And then they go introduce me to Robert uh, Smith. We go down, I go down to Austin and meet a bunch of their principals and go into Robert Smith's office and him and I hit it up. By the way, he's, he actually had a uh, uh, similar experience to mine. He was one of the only other people in my life that I've met that also did an internship at Bell Laboratories from the time they were a sophomore in high school through college. Mm-hmm. And on the same scholarship program that I was on, I had no idea who he was, but he's, he's he, you know, but, but he did it out of the Denver area. But I mean, we, I mean, just that connection even hits. So that was kind of like serendipity, right? I mean, how, how many people in the world had gone through that as we talked about earlier? Um, and so he started his career before going off to Goldman Sachs and a bunch of other stuff. And, and, uh, and, and really him and I hit it off tremendously i mean just you know i i don't i didn't know i was ready to leave alcatel at the time but you know after having that conversation and seeing what he was doing this was very early you know he, he hadn't gotten the name that he has now um what year is this this was 2011 mm. yeah so this is pretty this is pretty early i mean he, he you know they just you know he has his own story but but you know, I mean, he 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 didn't have the public image that he has now. I mean, that's something that's been really more in the last five years. Um, we got to know him and went and and you know, he talked me into moving. There's two companies at the time that he he thought I would do really well in, given my international experience. Um, you know, one was a company called Aptian, and the other was a company called Mysis. And you know, said, hey, why don't you why don't you come? Um, the conversation actually was my kids were still in high school, and I told him I couldn't moved back to the States right now because my kids had, had had made so many sacrifices for my career that I felt I owed it to them to at least finish high school and then go off and then I'd be open to a move. And he accepted that, actually appreciated it. Um, and then I get a call two weeks later and said, you know, how about you stay in Paris, but you know, take one of these roles as kind of the number two guy at one of these two companies um, get to know the ropes of the you know, how we do private equity, and then when you can come back to the states, then we will you know get you going on your own company that we're always constantly buying and selling. And so um, I did, I, you know, so I, I he talked me into doing it. I went up you know, working for a company called Aptian, which is actually based in Atlanta, but still was based in I was based in France, and we had about half of our business overseas anyway. So I ran the international division and all the operations, um, and then when my kids graduated. You know, transitioned from Aptian and went to a company called Kibo, uh, which we had just bought three companies. Uh, and so just since 2011, now I'm on my third, you know, private equity company, um, not with Vista, but with a, with a, with another private equity firm, but the two with Vista, you know, really understood the ropes with Vista. And just is, is, is a great experience when I think I'm the only African-American CEO that Vista has or has ever had actually, um, uh, maybe they've done something recently, but um, you know, just a really good group. Learned a lot through, through, through that experience, and kind of got me into another world. So it's the third world I've been in. I went from bigger company to startup to to you know private equity, um, you know, fast paced private equity environment, and we'll probably never leave the private equity environment. Just I, I love it. It's it's so nimble. It's so 
it changes every day. You know, you're constantly rebuilding teams, rebuilding process, rebuilding infrastructure. Um, you know, I just, I just love that world. And, and it's something you can, you know, monetize very, very differently than you can in traditional companies as well. Yeah. Yeah. So in, with your experience now, I'm glad you brought up the point about, um, you know, even Vista only having had you as, uh, you know, African-American CEO, there's a dearth of, um, obviously we're, we're living in the times that we're living in now. And so everyone seems woke to things that so many of us have been observing for years and, and, you know, sort of heeding the call and finally seeing that in technology as a whole. And I'd say really in most industries, when you look at investment banking, private equity, you name it, it's almost like we just don't exist in those worlds and which is important what's you know spurred on and inspired having this podcast is to share those stories what are, what are your what, what's your viewpoint on how do we stop to sort of stand that tide and and shift the narrative and help black folks understand that they too can get in the tech world and there's a space for them yeah i think you know there's there's a tech world and then there's you know different forms of tech world, right? I mean, you know, you talk about private equity, you talk about kind of the, you know, the Google, the Facebooks, and, you know, all the Silicon Valley, you know, stuff that's going on. And then you have more of the traditional, you know, tech space or even the IT space and so many companies that's becoming, you know, critical. Um, I think, you know, I always look at it as, you know, and I, you always hearken to your own experience. It's how do you get the light, first, how do you get the light bulb turned off, turned on in us? Right. Um, you know, the light bulb got turned on in me early, you know, early in my life and it never went out. OK. And, you know, I don't think it's something that is as tactical as just, you know, OK, you're, you know, you're in college. Let's go get a bunch of people there. I mean, it's, it's you got to go early, you know, into, you know, our kids life and, and kind of make them feel OK to get into this arena. And, and most engineers, I mean, you. You know, you said you're, you know, biotech. I mean, you didn't just start that in college. I mean, you, you know, there was something that happened far before college that kind of, you know, got you into that area that, yeah, that allowed that to happen. And that's what, I mean, there's a lot of fields you don't have to do that in, but I think in the, in the engineering field, it, 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 it starts very, very early. And you know, unfortunately, you know, there's just systemic things that, that, you know, it's it, it's us and it's you know the environment. You know, both you know don't necessarily help. You know, create a situation where um, you know you know we just don't get attracted to those fields. You know, socially or any other reason. So we got to go fix that first and foremost. And I think that's a lot. That's a lot of us that need to go ahead and do that, right? We need to go invest in programs that you know make it exciting. There's a there's a partner of mine down in New Orleans, uh, Calvin Mackey, who does, and you should. You're probably a good one to for you to you know you know chat with as well that has a STEM New Orleans program. He's kind of bringing it all over the country. Um, and he tells me the story where he's doing this STEM experiment behind the school that he it took him a month to get you know, authorization to do. And and there's this chain link fence and there's a football team and all the all the kids in the STEM had these little jackets, you know, little you know uh, lab lab coats and all that kind of stuff. And by the time it was all done, all the football players were sitting on the fence looking at the kids with the lab coats as opposed to the opposite of the, you know, the kids with lab coats looking at the kids playing football. And I mean, that's kind of the thought. How do we, how do we turn that around? And I said, so that's, that's one. 
Um, second, you know, is, you know, we have traditionally kind of taken very, even those that have gotten into engineering have taken conservative routes once we're in there, right? I mean, you know, so I think that there's, there needs to be a lot of mentorship and, you know, development of those that do decide to take the field to sit there and say, you don't need to just stop it you know, kind of the entry level position or the, you know, the position right after the entry level position, you know, there's just so much opportunity in this space. How do you, you know, how do you cultivate that, you know, talent that does arrive to go and do some pretty aggressive things and start moving the needle? I mean, getting into, you know, private equity, the opportunities in private equity, I had no exposure to them, but by accident, right? Um, and I'm sitting there at a pretty high level within, you know, within the industry at the time and had had really no exposure to it. And so, I think there's there's a lot of that you know going on you know that, that needs to happen you know as well and then I think the industry as a whole has a responsibility right I mean and that's what's so interesting about this time and that you know diversity has always been labeled you know the last 15 20 years as gender diversity diversity all the diversity programs were gender diversity programs which were very different than what it was in the 80s and 90s but um, you know now this period allows us to really look at these things a little differently and start addressing you know, some of these, some of these opportunities. So, you know, some of the things we got to do ourselves and some of the things now the, the industry is kind of, you know, creating an awareness that they need to go ahead and do as well. And so the problem is though, the industry is not going to, I mean, no matter how benevolent they are, if there's not enough of us sitting there knocking on the door, trying to get in they're they're not going to go and you know play the long game and try to develop it over 10 or 15 years. That's not going to happen. They're going to be very, you know, opportunistic. And so, you know, we got to be ready for that opportunity. And so we got to work on the things that we need to do as a, as a, as the people to kind of get there and then they start pushing the right buttons to, to take advantage of that is how I see it. What advice would you offer to a 20 or 30 year old version of yourself? Oh, um, I think the, the, the one piece of advice that I always like to give when I, you know, talk to younger people um, is, is, you know, never get complacent. I mean, if, if I were to look at one common thread of my, you know, evolution, I just call it evolution. Um, it's that there's always these forks in the road that presented themselves. And, you know, very often I took probably the least comfortable one because um, it changed so much, you know, professionally and personally but it's the one that allowed me to grow the most, you know, if you understand what I mean. And if I had taken the conservative path, you know, it could have been successful, but it probably wouldn't have, you know, allowed me to grow the way I did. And so I think when you're, when you're, when you're early in your career, 20, you know, twenties and thirties, you know, the objective, you know, can't be where do I, you know, where can I go make another five or $10,000? The objective is where can I, you know, get exposed you know, you know, in the most rich way possible, because, you know, you know, that five or $10,000 when you're 20 is irrelevant when you're 40, 50 and able to leverage the experience you have and the, and the, and the return on investment there. So, you know, you're going to make your money in the forties in your forties and your fifties, you're not going to make it all in your twenties. So, so prioritize exposure, you know, early in your career, because you'll be able to, you know, take full advantage of that, you know, later in your career. Um, is, is one. And part of that is taking those chances, you know, going and, you know, you know, taking manageable, you know, risk, you know, I'm, you know, I always have this thing. It's like, okay, when you're, when you're, you know, walking across, you know, a little river or something, there's rocks there, you kind of, you keep one, 
foot on something solid that you know is solid, but then you know reach out with your other and kind of see, okay, is that is that rock going to move or not? And if it does move, okay, you can kind of shift your your body weight back. But you know, you know, but take some chances. Get out there. Keep pushing. You know, the envelope on that early on. The more you do it, you know, the you know the better you're going to be. Yeah. You know, one way that I put it is you learn more from your stumbles or your failures than you do from when things work out. And so you, you've uh, yeah. stated it real nicely, you know, taking the path of least resistance isn't, you know, it's convenient at the time, but in the big picture, I couldn't agree more, you know, taking that less travel path and taking some risk. It's all part of the game. Yeah. Um, yeah. Another thing I'd ask about mentorships. Uh, what do you thought about mentors? How do people secure mentors and, and can you make a distinction between mentorships and uh, mentors and perhaps sponsors? Um, yeah, I, I think that most mentors, you know, should position themselves as sponsors as well. I mean, you don't need to be a, you don't need to be, a, you know, sometimes people say the sponsor is, is somebody in your organization, right? Like, different, you know, you can have a mentor anywhere, but a sponsor is somebody that can you know, help look at, look out for you within the organization at a, at a high enough level. I, I, the way I look at it is sponsors, you know, can exist anywhere because you shouldn't limit yourself to, you know, the place of work you're, you're at right now. I mean, you know, you're mentoring somebody there, there, they should understand you. They should understand what your interests are. I mean, I mentor people right now. I've, I've been you know, talking, I'm, I'm, I'm on the board of the USC business school. And, and I, I told the Dean, I said, I only want to talk to underrepresented minorities um, those are the only mentees that I that I want. I, I don't want to be, you know, uh, dismissive. I just, but I know that they need, you know, w- what I have. And I've, I've been talking to a number of them, and 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 I talk to them about where they're working, but I also talk to them about, you know, what those opportunities are and, and create the. I call it the hookups, right? I mean, you know, all of us had a hookup. It's some I mean, anybody that has gotten to our level. There, there's there's you know, there's multiple hookups in their lives that they were able to take advantage of. And I'm not too proud to say that I you know, took advantage of some of those as well. You know, how can I offer them to somebody else? I, I have a big network here. I mean, so, you know, if I see you're trying to do this and I really feel strongly about what you're capable of doing, then I will shift that from a mentor, you know, mentorship. Hey, let me advise into let me try to set up. OK, <laughs> you know, the opportunity um, you know, for you to advance what it is you're trying to do in, inside or outside of your company. Um, but I think that's just a big piece that, um, you, know, you know, we as the people, we, you know, because of, of kind of, you know, how we've you know, traversed the industry and have had to leverage it. I mean, just like anything else, you know, I think we have a, just a natural instinct to want to do that and give back. And so it's, it's, it's as important to me to, to mentor people as it is to do everything else I do in my life. Right. I mean, I'm, I'm probably more proud of, you know, that person that's now a VP of, um, you know, product development at, you know, company X. And I remember them when they were just, you know, a, an individual contributor um, than I have anything else I've ever done. You know what I mean? I mean that, you know, because it's, it's, it's almost like your own kids, right? I mean, I, you know, I don't know if you, you know, patronize it, but it's just, you, you, you get that in return. And I think that's just, you know, something that I don't think we need to tell ourselves we need to do more of it because I think we just naturally do it. Yeah. Um, it's good about it. You, your career took you all over the world, and oftentimes you had to lug your family along with you. How essential was the support of family uh, through this process? 
Yeah, I mean, my wife actually has a master's in computer science as well. Um, and so, you know, she took the journey to Bell South with me from AT&T Bell Labs. We met as interns at Bell Labs, actually. And, and, and when I went and we left Atlanta and moved to D.C., that was the time we looked at each other because we had, I think we were having our, yeah, we had our third kid at the time. And we just said, okay, you know, we got to make a party call here in terms of how we raise our kids. And my wife stopped working then, you know, late 99, um, and made the sacrifice to kind of focus on our kids. Had no idea financially how we were going to do it, but it just, it worked out, um, you know, when you're used to, you know, two incomes. Um, but it did work out. It was the best, one of the best decisions. I mean, I, I thank her every day. I know she sacrificed a lot. You know, she sees what I'm doing, but, you know, she had her dreams as well. Um, and that's, that's kind of hard sometimes when you really think about it, but I think as she looks at, you know, kind of the value that she was able to bring to our kids, it's a, it's a decision we make over and over again every single time. And so, you know, family is, is everything. I mean, I, I do, you know, everything I do right now, and I tell my kids this, I, I can, I can be penniless as long as they're, you know, they're taken care of. Um, you know, that's just how, 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 how we operate. We have a very tight knit you know, tight-knit family, and, uh, um, you know, they've been supportive throughout this. And they've also had some great experiences. And, you know, even some of the decisions I made, you know, the move to France and other things was a lot about giving them experiences as well. So they've seen the world with me. Um, you know, they're citizens of the world. They're not, you know, citizens of Texas. Uh, they actually struggled when they came back to Texas because they, they thought the world was a little bit too, too you know, small and shallow. <laughs> um, and uh, so, yeah, they, it's, it's, been, it's been a good ride. That's just... You know, it, it, as you go through, you know, a lot of tough times, I mean, you start realizing, and one thing I learned in Europe is you, you, you know, you don't live to work, you work to live. So you got to have that balance. Um, you don't have the balance. It's just, you know, you're going to keep doing this and just fall, fall over on the side one day and everybody's going to forget you and everybody's going to move on. I mean, you know, you got to, it, it means so much more. So what's on the horizon for you? What's your long-term big picture at this? Wow. Um, I, 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 I love the private equity world and I love what I do. I mean, and when I'm not doing it, you know, I just, you know, if I'm not to move the ball forward. I, I just get bored quite frankly. And so uh, probably do a couple more runs at this of good transformation opportunities, you know, companies. Um, I'm starting to kind of tinker around with, with boards um, now and, you know, but I still have too much operations in my blood. Still, I still have too much energy to kind of get into pure advisory. Um, people wanted to get get me into advisory. Another role, of private equity, is is kind of getting into an advisory capacity with as an operating partner. Not really ready for that until you know some of that flame extinguishes a bit. Um, so, so look at you know kind of doing that and then kind of transitioning, kind of really add value in an advisory level, you know, board and otherwise. It's kind of how I'd like to do it when I just you know don't have the same energy that I have today. Um, so look, looking forward to that. But then the other thing is, as you talked about, is how to how to develop the folks that are coming behind me. I'm not the young whippersnapper anymore that out there trying to change the world. Um, uh, you know, I have a lot of experience, and how do I help others fast forward? You know, you know their opportunities. Uh, you know, through my experiences, and that's how I look at it. So that's that's another big piece of what I want to go ahead and do. So speaking of ushering people in behind you. What advice would you offer brothers who are trying to get into private equity and then any closer remarks you might want to offer? Okay. Uh, on the private equity side, um, 
study, study, study. I mean, get to know people you know that are there. It's, it's now becoming a little bit of the, um, you know, kind of the in thing to do, right? I mean, you know, it's getting now, it, it's not what I, when I, 10 years ago when I started getting into it, I didn't know that much about it, but now everybody, you know, knows something about it, but it isn't for everybody. I mean, you know, quite frankly, it's not for everybody. It, it's for, you know, I just call it, there's a term that we use sometimes, which is, um, you know, kind of a wartime general and a peacetime general. It, it's, it's really for the wartime generals, right? I mean, it's the people that, okay, yes, they may have run big organizations before, but they're very capable of rolling up their sleeves and, you know, getting in the details. If, 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 if that's not who you are, you, you won't last a minute in private equity. I mean, you know, you know, you're sitting there taking teams that, you know, don't have the depth that you're accustomed to in larger companies and having to, you know, go build it and turn around, you know, while you're still operating the, the business. And so it's, 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 it's very dynamic. It's very, you know, it's very consuming. Um, and, and it moves at a pace that, you know, you're not accustomed to in, 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 in larger companies. And so you got to make sure you understand that. And the, and the rope, I call it the rope, the, 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 um, you know, the amount of flex you get is, is very little. I mean, if, if you're not delivering, you know, it's, it's, it's move on to the next person because you don't have time, you know, to develop and, 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 you know, kind of coordinate that way. So I think that, you know, so just make sure you do your homework, make sure you get out to people to understand what that reality really is. And there's enough people in the field to, to be able to help that. And just and from a closing remarks perspective, um, you know, I probably went into details in this interview that I've never gotten into. And this, again, there's hundreds of other stories around other areas, but yeah, you know, I, I think it's important to get these stories out. I mean, I love what you're doing and, and, you know, there's a little nugget that people can get through all of these is, you know, that's very, very important um, because, because, you know, these experiences, um, you know, are, are, are great stories. And I mean, and especially in the African-American community, because they're, they're unique, you know, I mean, you know, each one of these has a very unique element to them. Um, and depending on how you run the interview, I mean, they can go down, you know, so many different rabbit holes that, um, <laughs> that, that, you know, and, you know, with just interesting, you know, kind of sub stories to them that uh, I think it's, that needs to get out there more and more and more, you know, what these experiences are, what the reality you know, what those realities are. So, you know, I appreciate you giving me the time to tell a little bit of my story. Um, and I uh, hope you appreciate it. hope the audience appreciates it. Uh, they certainly do. It's been wonderful. Uh, I certainly appreciate you taking the time. I'm going to put in a shameless plug at some point. The audience wants to hear from Robert Smith. So I'm going to start sowing that seed and planting it with you. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but you've, I mean, this has been incredible, really taking us through the, this world that so few of us get a chance to see. And so uh, I think it's definitely much appreciated. I love hearing about your story, your travels and all that you've done through your career. You've talked to us about the importance of expanding your boundaries, um, taking risks and study, study, study. My guest today has been Kenny Frank. My name is Lalu Davis Yemitin, and you've been listening to my brother podcast. Appreciate it. I'm so proud of you. 
Never try to hurt you. I won't.